Alright everybody, welcome back to the Surely Can't Be Serious podcast. This is episode 2 of our Tulsa duo that we're doing right here. We're doing The Outsiders from 1983 versus Rumblefish from 1983. Both of these Francis Ford Coppola. Of course, both have Matt Dillon in them. D, I got a question for you. Yeah. You like to play 52 pickup? No. <laughs> hey, don't be wise. <laughs> he was such a jerk. He well, was he, a jerk. He, 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 they said it off at the beginning. He, it, it was the I don't op- like little kids. Yeah, it was the opposite idea of saving the cat. It was like, what can we make this guy do that everybody's going to hate him right off of the bat, right? And it's be a jerk to these little kids. Not, not only does he flip the cards at him, but then he <laughs> chases them. You just were you ever a little kid and you had this like jerk, sure head guy who chased you and was rude to you? Yeah. Did you hate his guts? Yes, and want him I did. To die? I still do. And that's what we got. Like that was my that was my neighbor. That yeah. freaking greaser shot my dog. I mean, I hated the dude wow. like that. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, and he was he was such a greaser. He was always working on his Camaro. Uh, we were talking. I was talking to Caleb before we started tonight. Uh huh. And he was like, "Man, I was so bummed when Dolly got shot at the end." And I'm like, "He's held up a convenience store." Yeah, he didn't. Also, he didn't see the beginning. But somehow, this is great. This is great stuff because you start off hating this guy. I mean, you you genuinely hate him. Right. He's and, a turd to Cherry Valance. And after you see what he does, I mean, that's another reason to hate him, honestly. Like, you see him be such a jerk to Cherry, and then the last thing she says is, I'll probably end up falling in love with him. And you know she freaking likes him. Yeah. You know. Like, I'm, I'm in the position of Pony Boy where, like, I'm that guy. I'm the guy who's like, she's being so nice to me, and I'm totally in love with her and she's in love with the guy who is an absolute jerk to her yeah right it's inevitable right but then slowly throughout the movie he keeps doing these little things to take care of these guys right he takes care of johnny and pony i mean when they are in their crisis stage he is the one who does not hesitate he gives them what they need he he gives I mean, 50 bucks for a kid in the 60s was huge. Yeah. Gives it to him immediately. Yep. Gives him a gun immediately. Tells them exactly where to go and what not to do and what to do. And I mean, he lays it out. He's and kind of their hero at that moment. Absolutely. He saves, he saves them. Yep. And then comes to see them and saves them again. I mean, he's taking care of them. Yep. He's doing everything he can to protect them for what he sees to be the bad guy. Yeah. That's absolutely jerk. true. Yeah. So that by the time the end is there, and you see him, see him stick the gun in that guy's face, I don't remember if they touched on this, but I, I think in the book it talks about he always carried an unloaded gun. Okay. So he's sticking the gun in the clerk's face, but we know it's unloaded, but then the clerk's gun is loaded. Right. So he's bleeding out, and he decides, I'm going to go all the way, and commits suicide. Do it for Johnny, man. Do it for Johnny! Yep. By the way... I told you this yesterday. Yeah. I had a great time going around Tulsa finding all these spots. And some of them you can find on Google. Some of them you can't. Some of them, if you kind of look around, you might be able to figure it out. The spot where the fountain is is very recognizable. You can see that. The Curtis Brothers house, it's a landmark. You can find that easily. But the place where Dally gets shot and killed, I walked around and I started to look at my phone, try to figure out, okay, that tree is there and that thing's there. Okay, there's that fence right there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I figured it out. And uh, I was standing in this spot. I'm like, there it is, right there. And Dally was shot and killed right there. Boom. When you showed me that picture, I'm like, this is what the guys see as they're running, screaming no. Towards him. Right? Yep. And he goes rolling down the hill. Mm-hmm. Crutchfield Park. 
Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. All right. You ready to move on to Rumblefish? Yes. Now, we get a lot of crossover here. A lot of crossover. We obviously have Diane Lane still in it. We've obviously got Matt Dillon still in it. I mentioned already that Glenn Withrow is both, you know, he slashed my tires, Tim Shepard or whatever his name right, is. Right, right. And is also Biff in the Rumble scene in Rumblefish. But we've got some new people. we got Mr. Mickey Rourke, who you mentioned auditioned for The Outsiders. Didn't get a part, but Francis was taken with his audition. Okay, let's just take a step back and, and, and think about our origin story here. Yes. He decides to shoot Rumblefish while he's shooting The Outsiders. Like, he was unfamiliar. Right. And he literally, like, gets the recommendation from Matt Dillon and S.E. Hinton. He reads the book, and it captivates him so much that he literally... he the. The words fly off the page as he sits down to write the script for this thing. And just a few weeks after they are finished filming The Outsiders, they start filming Rumblefish, and they've got to go through all of the casting process. But he said at this time with these young actors, he felt like one of the old directors who had just like their arsenal of actors that always were willing to work with him. And he said it was this really great moment where he was just like, he didn't have to go call the casting director and this person in the studio and that person and the agents and all this other stuff he just called these guys back up and was like hey i've got this other movie i'd love you to be in it would you like to come and because he's francis ford coppola they were like yes I absolutely would love to come. yes and so you've got mickey rourke who had auditioned you've got matt Dillon and diane lane and then you got dennis hopper who was in Apocalypse Now. Yes. I mean, he was an icon at the time. He was very into his intoxication at the time as yeah, well, yeah. which was also a problem with Apocalypse Now. And uh, Francis Ford Coppola would be like, he he he's like, I love him. I love Dennis Hopper. That's why I wanted him in this movie. But his uh, indulgence at the time was extreme and it would be difficult and so uh what i did to deal with that is that whenever it was time for him to shoot his scenes i would go to my trailer and watch it from a video screen and i would not be in the same place as him and he would get mad and he would come pound on my door but that was how i dealt with him being intoxicated all of the time wow you know who you originally wanted for that role tell me jack nicholson well there you go the other guy from easy rider right yep there you you go Yep. By the way, Mickey Rourke. Yeah. When you watch Rumblefish, he's so quiet and yeah. like reserved. Yeah. He doesn't raise his voice at all. And he's supposed to be like the coolest guy alive, right? Right. He's supposed to be James Dean on steroids. Right. Well, the guys who were in charge of like the sound mm-hmm. kept asking him to speak up, dude. Speak up. Yeah. And so their nickname for this movie, Mumblefish. <laughs> Well, they had this idea that he was kind of the philosopher king. And so they changed his hair. They wanted to make him look like a French philosopher. So they picked Camus as their French philosopher to go with. Okay. And so his haircut and his cigarette, the way he held his cigarette and all that stuff, that was all this idea of him being philosophical and intelligent. Kind of the opposite of rusty james by the way mickey rourke decided i'm going to play this role as if i'm an actor who no longer finds my work interesting yeah okay (laughs) it's interesting so here was here was his acting technique right yeah Uh, a couple of talks about this he's like so every day he would show up to set to the set and he would have a new little talisman, a new little fidget spinner, knickknack, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> fidget spinner. Yeah, right. Okay. So, some sort of something, right? Yeah. Something new. Right. And he said what Mickey would do 
is he would take this thing, he would look at it at the beginning of the day, he would look at it, and then he would stick it in his pocket. And for the entire scene, every time he was in a scene, he would spend the entire scene thinking only about that talisman. And so that's how you get this kind of distracted, thousand-yard stare. I'm pondering the mysteries of the universe. It was he gave himself something to think about other than what was going on in the scene. And it really created... I mean, I love his performance in this. I mean, you can call him Mumblefish or you can right. you can call it whatever you want. But I, I love it. I mean, he's he is perfect as the guy who has led the brigade only to realize I've got nowhere to go. Yeah. And that's where he is. That's right? the whole point of the movie, right? Right. I'm leading I'm leading the Pied Piper and where am I going? Everybody's following me, but where am I going? Right. And you he know? doesn't know the answer to that. Right? right. Okay. By the way, yeah. Mickey Rourke goes on to do nine and a half weeks. Yep. He does a great movie. Speaking of Batman. Exactly. Right. Vicky Vale. He does a very controversial movie in 87 with Lisa Bonet called Angel Heart. Remember that? Right? Got yeah. her fired from the Cosby show. Cosby girls do not show their nipples. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And then later on, don't forget, in Iron Man 2, he plays Whiplash. And if you want to talk about it, I mean, he's still quiet and contemplative and smoking his cigarettes, but... He doesn't talk like this anymore. He talks like this. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, is that that same voice? What had Too many cigarettes, Camus. What yeah. are you doing here? <laughs> That's right. By the way, Francis Ford Coppola invited Tom Cruise to be involved in Rumblefish as well. Okay. And Tom Cruise was like, listen, I know I told you that whatever you said, I was there. He goes, but I'm doing this thing called Risky Business and I can't get out of it. We're going to be covering that movie soon. Good call. Yeah, that was a great movie. Yeah, there you One go. One of the 83 trio. I love it. Okay, we've talked about Nicolas Cage in this. Yep. Now, interesting part in this movie, there are a lot of kind of key ingredients that you don't even realize how important a character he's going to be in this movie until the end. Right. And there's a lot of key ingredients to what happens that we're all Nick Cage ideas so oh, okay. I'm, excited. I'm excited to tell you about that interesting we'll come okay. back there and then we haven't talked about pre footloose mr chris penn oh yeah i forgot chris penn yeah yeah so chris penn sean penn's brother who's in reservoir dogs who's in footloose pale rider yeah yeah um he is this over the top and again one of his very first, maybe his first this may be his first movie i don't remember mm-hmm. but he's this over the top member of rusty james's gang he's entertaining in this i don't know how to, how to describe him other than that sure. he does he plays the part that he needs to play perfectly well he does a great job and then we got another guy that we've seen before in apocalypse now mr larry <laughs> lawrence fishburne lawrence fishburne yeah larry yeah. fishburne is is his credit in this particular movie he wasn't in the script this again was just one of those hey i really like working with larry let me give him a call and see what he's got going on. And he's, he calls him up, and it, the, the character's name is Midget. And he's kind of just this apparitional angel. I mean, he's he's real, but he just floats around. He does. Like he's a, just always around. Yeah. Before you leave Larry, Larry Fishburne. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, He goes on to do The Matrix. When Francis Ford Coppola called him, he said, Listen, it's just a small part, Yeah. but we'll figure out something cool for you to do. Just come out. Yeah. Come out to Tulsa, and you can make it your own, and we'll find something creative to do with it. And he said he was like a son to me, so I wanted him around. Yeah, I love the kind of familiar atmosphere that he's got. So. For sure, for sure. So we got another carryover from The Outsiders, Mr. William Smith, who 
you and I were talking about him. I was like, man, I saw the cop in Rumblefish, and I was like, I think that's the same guy as the store clerk in The Outsiders. And I was like, I know that guy's face. Where do I know that guy's face? I had to look him up, and he was Philo Beto's friend but competitor in Any Which Way You Can. That's exactly right. Oh, my gosh. It's been too long since I've seen that movie. I love those movies. Yeah. I we, would love to talk about those movies. I would, point. too. Right? Okay. That was like my dad's favorite actor growing up was always Clint Eastwood, so I'm very familiar with Left Turn Clyde. I haven't seen those movies in <laughs> decades, and I would love to go revisit them. We need to do Every Which Way But Loose, Any Which Way You Can, and maybe we'll compare them to Dirty Harry. I don't know. Oh, that'd be so much fun. Yeah. One other little side note I just want to toss in here. Yeah. You know they say Rusty James... Over 50 times in Rumblefish. It was uh, noticeable. It was noticeable. It was noticeable. I was like, it's a little excessive here. I don't call you James D. every four seconds. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. There are some people like that. A lot of people do call me D. Graves. They do give me the full name. I don't know why it is. (laughs) He's not enough. you got to give me a full name here. Let's go with D. Graves. Um, So as you mentioned, Tom Waits... Is also in this movie. He yep. was a, he was the kind of the club owner in The Outsiders, and he is the pool room owner right. in Rumblefish. And then there's a small part, the black pool player, who is like, "You will never be the motorcycle boy." Talking to Rusty James, right? You'll never be him. You just it's just not not ever going to happen. Right. That's an actor named Herb Rice. He was also in Apocalypse Now. Also one okay. of those guys that. Francis Coppola just called up and said, hey, we're doing this movie. Come over. Let's figure out something to do with you. Just loved him. Wanted him to be there. That's fantastic. Yeah. By the way, we we talked about it before, and I don't know his name, but Bob from Batman is one of the thugs in <laughs> yeah. Rumblefish. That's right. That is right. <laughs> Bob from Batman. He's, uh, what's his name in uh, City Slickers? He's in he's one of those, that guy. You know, he's just kind of yeah. a that guy in a lot of yeah, different he's movies. Kinda, yeah, he is kind of that, uh, yeah. That, that guy who's always the cookie, the, the chef. Cookie, the chef. That's exactly yeah. right. I'd love to talk about City Slickers one of these days. Oh, and by the way, one one other person that's in both movies that we didn't mention, Essie Hinton. Yeah, that's right. So the author of the book, you know, she's very involved <laughs> with production of the movies. In The Outsider, she is the nurse who's trying to help Dally as he's just being a total jerk turd to her yeah yeah absolute turd and then in rumblefish she's the hooker she's the prostitute she is the hooker and she is flirting with matt Dillon, and she is flirting with steve who's played by vincent spano yeah that's right vincent spano was in alive he's been in a ton of stuff but yep. nick cage at the time was blonde had to dye his hair black right uh vincent spano has black hair he had to dye his hair Blonde, And then one other person who just has kind of a unique part, the heroin addict former girlfriend of Motorcycle Boy is a girl named Diane Scarwood. And her character's name is Cassandra. And I'm just going to say that I'll throw this out there because it's, you know, why not be, uh, why not be that guy? So there's this scene where Dennis Hopper, Mickey Rourke, Matt Dillon are all in the apartment and they're goofing and stealing liquor bottles and horsing around with each other. This was all improv. Like Francis Ford Coppola encouraged them to try to get familiar with each other in this way. Right. And this scene, Matt Dillon, Rusty James, starts talking about this girl, Cassandra. And he's like, ah, she says she's not hooked, but I think she's hooked. And uh, 
Dennis Hopper being the genius that he is, the Greeks got him. And he's, Rusty James is like, what? And he says it loud. He's like, the Greeks got him. Yeah. Cassandra is a key character in Greek mythology. She was a Trojan, <laughs> Trojan princess who Apollo fell in love with. This is I've got to give this to you because I these are the holes that I go down. Right, Apollo falls in love with this Trojan princess, you know, sister to Paris and Hector and all those folks. Anyway, and promises her divinity if she does some, you know. Favors. Some things. Some things. Sure. And she's like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And so he gives her divinity, and then she says, oh, okay, I'm not really going to do that. And so her curse that he gives her, because he couldn't take her divinity away, was that she would always be able to predict the future, but no one would ever believe her. Ah, uh, interesting. So just something to kind of swim around in your head as you're thinking about how the Rumblefish plays out. Because I feel like it's connected. And maybe it's just Dennis Hopper being Dennis Hopper and being awesome, but Mickey Rourke was right on it and knew what was going on. There's so many layers to Rumblefish, I would not put that past anyone. Yeah. So, how much does this movie, like, did you identify with? Like, did you think... The Outsiders? Yeah, like, I, I, I know guys like this. I... Was in this group. I was in this group. I was watching these groups from outside. What did you- well, I identified a lot. Yeah. The group that I'm most involved with is the Southside Socias. Yeah. So I did go to a Southside high school uh-huh. that's, you know, very affluent. Right. And preppy even. Yeah. With money. And so my running crowd were the Socias for sure. So Jinx. Jinx. I, I went to a smaller school, like and so it was it was basically Socias and Cowboys basically. Uh-huh. Um, but the bigger schools in the town were North side and South side, and it was South side again that was more affluent than yeah. North side. Uh huh. Yeah. You know the interesting thing about my school, and I don't, I don't want to get into my personal stuff too much, but Jinx is split by the Arkansas River, mm-hmm. but that's the river that Rusty James is trying to get those fish into. Right. Is that's the Arkansas River? Right. I crossed that river every single day I went to high school there and back. Yep. So. I live, <laughs> I live next to the Arkansas River in an entirely different place. I okay. was in Fort Smith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It says, yeah, river, Arkansas River flowed right by the town, right in between, you know, us and Oklahoma. Really. There you go. So, was there anything about Rumblefish that you were like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I remember something like that as a kid. Not as much. Okay. Not as much. Both teen movies, right? Sure. But you definitely have what was kind of the tro- were the tropes of teen movies back in the '80s, especially, right? Mm-hmm. But with Rumblefish, you still had some stuff that, for me, as a, you know, a small town kid, I was like, "Oh yeah, there's the pool room." Like everybody always went and played pool at the pool room. Okay, that was where we hung out, right? Yep, right. You know, somebody would be playing music on the jukebox. We'd be talking very much like dazed and confused pool. Video games, foosball, that's what we did. And then there was a part, and Coppola talked about this as well, where they're under the bridge. Mm-hmm. It's after they've been mugged by Bob and the guy with the crowbar or whatever, right? Right. And they're under the bridge, and he talked about how when you're a kid, you just try to kind of find places to go that are your places and are secret and mysterious. And he says a lot of times for a kid, that is a bridge. Sure. Totally hit home for me. It was the bridge that went over the Arkansas River. Like there's, are you a, serious? A huge bridge that goes over, that crosses the border between Arkansas and Oklahoma. And when I was 
a teenager and running around and getting into mischief. At some point, I was under the bridge, and I looked up, and I'm like, there's a ladder. And I realized that the ladder went up to this crawl space that was literally under the bridge. And I realized I can crawl all the way from Arkansas to Oklahoma on my hands and knees going underneath this bridge. And that's exactly what I did. And then I started bringing friends there. I'm like, guys, you got to see this. <laughs> so That's awesome. Yeah. I that, that is the beauty about these two movies. As polar opposites, you still look at them and you go, yeah, that's like it was sure. when I was a kid, right? Sure. Or if you're a kid, yeah, that is me. That that, And I think that's why all of those kids had such a strong identification with the outsiders, so much so that they were like, hey, Mr. Coppola, Will you please make this into a movie? Sure. Yeah. I got one last Arkansas River story for you. Okay. Last day of seventh grade. Okay. 1986. Okay. I still remember I had Van Halen 5150 in my Walkman. Okay. <laughs> We're crossing the river on my, you know, the yellow school bus. Yeah. Not the short one, the long one. <laughs> and we decide that the funniest thing ever would be if we all threw all of our papers out of the window at the same time. And like the entire school, and it just caught fire. Like that bus, we saw that bus doing it, so we did it. The next bus, we dumped so much paper into the Arkansas River. <laughs> now, the other thing, the other thing that hit home for me did would not have hit home for me as a teenager, but as a now in my forties year old man, okay, was the speech that Tom Waits gives as Benny in Rumblefish. Okay. Where he's talking, he's cleaning up glasses, he's cleaning up the bar in Benny's Billiards, right? Right. And it's this kind of weird angled shot from the ceiling where you, as he's talking, you're looking kind of down over the top of his head and you have a very big space in the picture that's taken up by this clock where it's got this scrolling kind of menu and specials thing. And he's talking about how when you're young, you can lose a year or two and it doesn't make any difference. But right. at some point, and the, he says the line, he's like, at some point you realize you've only got 35 summers left. Yeah. yeah. Imagine that, 35 summers. And I thought about it for a second. I'm like, I don't think I have 35 summers oh. And that's the key kind of clincher for this teen movie is it's all about time. Right. And so if you if you watch with that in mind, you will see clocks everywhere. You do they see are clocks, clocks everywhere. All over the place. And what's looming, right? I haven't I'm giving you my own interpretation of this, but what's looming in this movie is that cop, right? The cop has it out for motorcycle boy. He right? does. And we know how the movie ends. So we know it's coming. And it's as though Rusty James knows that that's what's coming as well. And he's the little brother who got left alone, which is, as a little brother, that's the terrifying thing. You know, I, I felt like Francis Ford Coppola did about his older brother. I feel that way about my brother. Like, he was the first and best teacher I had, right? And when he's gone, when he's missing, that's troubling to me. And so you've got this scene where the cop walks up to Motorcycle Boy and Rusty James inserts himself in between those two protecting his brother from death the cop has got to be death right right they are standing in front of a gigantic clock it's a huge clock with no hands on it it is fantastic i mean (laughs) francis ford coppola in this movie in rumblefish is definitely tapping into the art film into the existentialist style of the germans 
that he loved. You know, Ingmar Bergman and all these other, you have these, you have the time-lapse photography, you have the black and white. He even painted shadows on things to give it the right feel. And the only things that you have in color are the fish, the rumblefish, right? Okay, I'm dying to talk about that. Yeah. This is a black and white movie. Yep. And, and keep in mind, this is 1983. Mm-hmm. You can't computer color stuff. No. The only thing in color are the fish. Right. That was a stunning visual for me. Right. It's like, uh, you ever seen the movie Pleasantville? Yeah. It's sort of similar type of feels. Yeah. Well, it was not done with a computer at that time. Right. They, they just filmed it in color and then did an overlay so that only the fish would be in color. There's one other part. It's when Rusty James realizes he will never achieve his dream, which is to be his older brother, to become his older brother. He will never achieve it. Right. He just he just watched him die. He does this last-ditch effort to kind of finish his mission of putting the rumblefish in the river so Get that the maybe they the won't river. kill each other. Right? right. Maybe they won't kill each other. And then he gets arrested. And when you see him getting arrested, you see him look at himself in the reflection of the cop car window, and he's in color. It's awesome. It's awesome. There's a lot going on, and I'm really disappointed that Rumblefish wasn't better received than it was. I, you know, in Coppola, when he's doing his commentary, he can't really understand it because he's like, I just don't really get it. What? And I, I saw a guy, you know, Coppola is a wonderful artist, but this guy said he had the financial sense of a newt. <laughs> Right, newt and newt. But this movie is so interesting. If you haven't seen it recently, you really owe it to yourself to give it a rewatch. Yeah, and and I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but this is one of those movies that I'm like, well, I actually haven't seen that movie. And people are like, what? You haven't seen The Outsiders? Right. Yeah. Before we did this, I had not seen The Outsiders. I had not seen Rumblefish. So I literally got to watch these movies back to back, back to back, few days apart, and they are. A so very different experience. And I don't know, as a teenager in the 80s, I probably would have been like everybody else. I've been like, Outsiders is great, Rumblefish, weird. Right. Right. Now, as a man who's watched a bunch of movies and has a more mature taste, I don't want to tip my hand here, but Rumblefish is definitely a movie that you guys, if you haven't seen it, please go watch. I could have called that, by the way. I haven't said which one I'm going yet. <laughs> hey, by I the way, said. okay, there's one thing I really want to talk about with you in pertaining to Rumblefish. Yeah. The out-of-body experience that Rusty James has. Yeah. Okay, I know that, practically speaking, they had to make a body mold for Matt Dillon, and it was kind of uncomfortable. He couldn't move around. Right. And they actually had to like use a crane to kind of move him around, and it looks really cool. And think... Bram Stoker's Dracula, again, Francis Ford Coppola, right? Oh, yeah, It's right. a practical effect, and he's moving around, hovering, uh-huh. and sort of out-of-body experience. Yeah. What did you think about that scene? Well, w- what I thought was he is envisioning his death like everyone wants their death to be. When he goes by the house that his girlfriend and her little sister, they're bawling their eyes out. Right. right. They're hysterical with grief. Right. When he goes and he hover and he goes past the pool and by the way, side note, he also continues to lie to her at that point to say <laughs> that he did not screw around with the other girl. And smokes a cigarette. That's right. some funny stuff right there. But anyway, and then he goes to the pool room and all of his friends, all of his friends are like raising a toast 
it, you know, it was an honor to know you kind of sure. situation. Did I think he was dead? Yeah, but I started going, uh, is, this it's, is just his dream of what death would be like. This isn't actually it. So I read some stuff. A lot of people had trouble with that particular scene. And for me, it works. It, it works in the movie. Mm-hmm. It, the movie is just weird enough that it pulls off all these things. Right. But it's consistent because when he's in his high school shop class, he's daydreaming about his girlfriend. Yeah. And she's in lingerie, like, on top of the bookshelves. With a clock behind her, by the way. With a clock behind her. Yeah. And so there are some sort of in-and-out imaginary <sighs> things that happen. It's interesting because they don't give you a clear transition. Like, it, you are watching stuff where he's in class and is looking at her, and so you're like, you know this is a dream. She's not going to really be in a bikini or in lingerie in on the top shelf in a classroom. Right. And then it goes back to him as he's kind of in this fever from being slashed. And then it goes back again. He's in shop class, and you see her, and the clock is spinning. And then all of a sudden, he's talking to her outside of her house, helping with the groceries out of the trunk, and you're like, is this another dream right oh, oh wait no this isn't and there's no clear cut hey okay we're back to reality now it's just I know. they kind of mix it in and i'm like uh, okay i guess we just got better and that's it you don't really have any more on it hi i'm dayton the host of the docking base 77 podcast we talk about everything from anthrax to the muppets to west side story all right boys buckle up because we have hit the bottom <laughs> of the barrel he slaughters all the Tuscan Raiders. The fact that she stays by his side, that, that tells me everything I need to know about these women that write letters to serial killers in prison. You know, it makes it made sense, you know. Mopey, young, sad, always dumped Tim. That was the theme song, you know. <laughs> when you listened, Tim, did you have the volume on? Or? Oh. Uh, the witches are definitely much more nightmare fuel. But the fact that they look like the Texas Chainsaw Centerfolds. Um. <laughs> um, if Django Fett is so awesome, he's hired to be cloned, why the hell isn't he doing the job? He's like, my Question. client's getting impatient. Well, then, what, you slack-ass mother? Why don't you do it? You know, you're just... <laughs> Check us out on Apple Podcast, Good Pods, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. One other thing, we've talked several times now about the fact that you have gone to these different places, uh, both in Rumblefish and in The Outsiders. There was a place that was very cool looking in Rumblefish. Okay. That you will not be able to find. Okay. Because they completely created it, but it was still in Tulsa. Yeah, it's the fair. Yeah, so when they go to the black neighborhood where everybody is having a fantastic time, I it mean, it looks awesome. It looks great. Like I want to go hang out there and listen to Queen Ida sing the blues and drink beer and play pool and yeah. listen to you know guys playing guitar and it was awesome. It was completely created for the movie at an abandoned alleyway and area of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, video arcade, right? He's playing the video arcade. That's the other thing about this. Like, <laughs> The Outsiders is, takes takes place in the 60s and looks like it could be very well in the 80s. And this movie looks like it's taking place in the 60s. But video games, magazines, cars, all give away. This is the 80s. Yep. Hey, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. This is a conversation I had with our buddy Jeff Johnson. Okay. 
the score and music for both of these. Now, for me, you have that the Stevie Wonder song at the beginning of Outsiders, yep. which is very after-school special. Yeah. I'm not a fan at all of that. Right. And I know you and I talked. I said, you know, there's this sort of over-the-top score. It really adds a lot of cheese to it. It's I, wrong. We didn't like it at all. Carmine Coppola. Yes, his dad did the music for it. So now this guy, I mean, he was a very well-known composer, had done a ton of work before this. Francis Ford Coppola, once he had it and had heard the score, he was like, I don't really think this is right for this movie, but I don't have the courage to tell my dad that. So he just went with it. He just went with it. And so when they did the DVD re-release, where they added scenes that had been cut, added the trial scene that we talked about... He, I mean, his dad had passed away at that point. He's like, well, I'm a little free now to do more of what I want. And so as I understand, I haven't seen it, but they like they put more 60s songs in there and made it more of a 60s feel pop okay. sound. So listen to this. Yeah. So you and I had a conversation a couple of days ago, and we're like, the score, it's, it's way too much after school special. It's too much. We know Coppola didn't like it. His dad did it. He was in a pinch. We get it. Yeah. Okay. And but you and I had talked and basically agreed that if they had dropped that and plugged in some rock and roll, sixties era rock and roll, right. it'd really jazz it up and make it feel better. Yeah. So I talked to Jeff Johnson. Yeah. And I called him up and he loves the outsiders. Uh-huh. And he asked me, he said, Have you seen the complete novel version of The Outsiders? Right, that's the yeah. And I said, Well, no, I'm watching the one on HBO Max. Right. And he's like, Whatever you do, don't waste your time with the new complete volume really and his complaint was the music really and i said what 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 are you talking about he's like they took out that score and they like ram rock and roll down your throat like 60s era rock and i'm like are you kidding so anyway he was very very firm that coppola's score was better than the the rock that they added so i think that's interesting because we had said yeah that's how to make it better yeah that's crazy Interesting. By the way, one more thing. Yeah. The music for Rumblefish. Yeah, this is good. Is done by our main man, Stuart Copeland of The Police. Yeah, so here's the thing. We get to Rumblefish and he's like, Dad's not going to score this one. He was actually going to try to score it himself. I know. He had gotten together and he, again, the the key, like the theme word for this is time. So what else are you going to do? But you're going to have a metronome beating out a very clear time signature right and they based their rhythm around a clock and so he's kind of got this idea he knew of Stuart Copeland with his work with the police and he said he was so precise right. he was so mathematically precise with his rhythm he asked him to do the drums for this movie and so he gives him this music that he's kind of worked up and Stuart Copeland starts playing with it and then Stuart Copeland comes to him and says how would you feel if I did the whole score and so he said it wasn't strikingly different from what he had come up with it was still very similar but it was better for sure right what Stuart Copeland had done and this was a big deal because at that point he's just the drummer for the police which is not insignificant but he goes on to become a substantial film composer after this yeah so besides uh, putting Sting in a headlock he can actually compose <laughs> stuff for movies right one other thing on the sound note is sound designer 
And this is an interesting story as well. So Richard Beggs is the sound designer for Rumblefish. Okay. And there was something going on with the union, with the sound editor's union, and they... The sound editors have a union? Yes, sound editors. <laughs> so there's the sound editors have a union, and they, for some reason, they couldn't, they wouldn't let Richard Beggs be a sound editor on this movie. Okay. And they're, and they're like, well, you know, we really need him. We really want him. What can we do? And they're like, listen, you can use him, but you just, you can't use editor in the title. Okay. You, can't, you can use him for something else, but you just can't call him an editor. Okay. And so they're like, so could we call him a designer? And at this stage in history, we've heard sound designer a million times. This is where it started. They couldn't call... Richard Beggs, a sound <laughs> editor, so they came up with the term sound designer, and now that is what you aspire to if you are a sound editor. Wow. You want to be a sound designer. But on that note, Francis Ford Coppola had bought this really expensive projector. And so the scene with Bob and the guy with the crowbar, yes. there's this moment where the guy with the crowbar comes up and whacks Rusty James, whacks Matt Dillon in the head. And so when he was doing the scene, he had this projector, this very, very expensive projector that he had gotten, showing the scene as it was being shot. And like he said, they're out in the city, and all these bums and (laughs) criminals are wandering over, and they're watching this big projector of him getting hit in the head with a crowbar. And after each take, they'd be like, no, (laughs) no, not real, no, no. And so he's like, Really? It's like, okay, so it goes back. And they do like 19 takes. And every single time, these guys are like, nope, not realistic. No, no. And so then he realizes, he's like, there's no sound. You don't have the sound of the crowbar hitting his head. Because he's not really hitting him with his head. Sure. And he's like, so he has bags throw the sound in. And they're like, yep, that's it. That's it. <laughs> he ends up using his third take. After 19 takes of hitting Matt Dillon over the head with a crowbar, he uses the third take. Nice. That is locationally deep in downtown Tulsa. Yeah. In between big buildings. I'm glad I get to experience that and identify. That was a fun conversation we had, yes. I got something for you on this, okay? During The Outsiders, Francis Ford Coppola did want to set up some animosity between the group of actors who were the Sochas and the group of actors who were greasers. And he did it several different ways, okay? For the Sochas, they got a like a leather-bound, really nice copy of the script, and the greasers got like punch-holed, laminated, you know, crappy version of the script. Uh-huh. C. Thomas Howell talks about how one day they decided, okay, guys, we're all going to go play football. Here's your sweatpants and a black T-shirt that says greasers across the front of it. And then he gave like a matching high-dollar jumpsuit and really nice shoes to the Sochas. And when the greasers and Sochas squared out on this little game of football, C. Thomas Howell's like, we were intent on kicking the crap out of them. (laughs) And he said, on that day, we lit them up. Nice. Rob Lowe said that uh, one night, Francis Ford Coppola came to him and said, hey, how about you and Cruz go sleep in over at a greaser's house? And they're like, what? What are, you, what, are, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, there's this guy who uh, w- was a greaser. Uh-huh. Go spend the night at his house. And so Rob Lowe and Tom Cruise went over to this guy's house. They ended up sleeping in the basement. And But they're just young kids, and they're down there like, we don't we don't know these people. What are we doing here? <laughs> so Coppola did all kinds of stuff like that to them. 
I also heard the actors talk. One of the benefits for being cast in this movie, yeah, all the beer they could drink. Oh, nice. It's teenagers. They just kind of kept the beer flowing for teenage boys. <laughs> well, that's all right. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, my sister-in-law mentioned there was a lot of barbecue and a lot of partying going on. Yeah. Tom Cruise came back through Tulsa several years later, like, this is in the 90s or something. Yeah. And he ran into one of the girls who said, I worked at the hotel when you guys stayed here for The Outsiders. The first words he said to her was, I am sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because they did all kinds of, I mean, shenanigans in the hotel. Teenage boys. Yeah. yeah. I've got a, three of them right now. <laughs> I know how shenanigans can go. Apparently in the hotel lobby, yeah. there was a fountain where they reenacted the uh, the drowning scene. Yeah. Yeah. That's hysterical. <laughs> okay. So one last thing, talking about the end of Rumblefish. Okay. And I mentioned in our last episode that Nick Cage, in his debut role... That, you know, you think he's a side man until the very end when, you know, Patty and Rusty James have broken up. Right. And then Rusty James, of course, he's back in the pool hall. He's playing pool and Patty shows up. Oh, my. <laughs> Holy cow, did she look good. Hey, Diane Lane is a beautiful woman. Yeah. And he thinks she's there to see him and she's not. Right. She's there to see Nick Cage. Yep. The Wild Deuces. The heir apparent now. We know that uh, we know that Rusty James is not going to be the one that takes over for his brother. Uh-huh. And so he so Nick Cage sits down and he starts flirting with her and they've obviously developed this relationship sure. and you realize Nick Cage's character is the one who set him up. He like manufactured broke, the party. Right. Manufactured the party where Rusty James has the affair. Right. And then tells her about it or gets word to her about it so that she's got a reason to leave him. And then he can slip in, just like Machiavelli here, <laughs> slip into the king's throne. Yep. Right? Sure enough. So he's doing these little flirtatious things and like giving, he's like giving her a, a locket with a picture of him as a baby in it. That's Nick Cage's idea, right? <laughs> like all of these little flirty things that he's doing, all Nick Cage's idea. And then Coppola has this moment that he was excited about, right? Where Rusty James keeps asking him to step outside, step outside, and you think it's going to be a fight. And then they go out and discuss, and Rusty James realizes that he's been set up, but is like admires the tenacity and the gumption of this guy. And so there's this moment where he hands over the pool cue as though he's handing over the throne to to this new guy right and then nick cage decides to drop it and that's why it gets dropped it was he it was like i don't need your pool cue i did this on my own you're not giving me something i took it from you so he took coppola's idea and took it a level up that's cool i yeah. like that that's Very a good ad lib cool. yeah yeah and then one last tidbit this is the last tidbit i have okay also richard beggs was trying to find this perfect sound for the fan that's going on in the pool room yeah and they you know they're going through different fans and finally he's got the fan that he thinks is the right fan fan sound for an old dusty pool room and couple is there and he's like it doesn't sound gritty enough and he's like what does that mean he's like it just doesn't like i don't think it sounds right for a downtown pool it doesn't sound gritty enough he's like i don't even know and couple goes picks up the fan slams it against the floor Picks it back up, turns it on. He's like, yeah, no. It's <laughs> That's good. That's good. 
By the way, I did try to go to the location of the pet store uh-huh. in Rumblefish. Yeah. That building no longer exists. All right. So, there you go. Pets are free. Are we ready for final judgment? The time is now. That was then. This is now. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Okay, you first. Okay. So, I did grow up having a relationship with The Outsiders. The cast is absolutely undeniable. I read the book growing up, so Outsiders had a way head start in my mind with these two movies. Now, I love both because I love my hometown. Rumblefish is different. It's odd. It's artistic. But, man, I can't take my eyes off of it, right? And they really are two sides to the same coin. I enjoyed the darkness and sort of the R-ratedness of Rumblefish, but I just can't leave my first love. I have to stick with The Outsiders. Okay, so I didn't grow up with The Outsiders. I mean, I was familiar with it. I was not familiar with Rumblefish at all. I mean, okay. I'd probably heard the name, but I couldn't have told you who was in it or right. that it came out the same year, that it was the same director, same writer, all of that stuff. Right. And obviously, I grew up with those guys, right? Rob Lowe, Tom I mean, Cruise, who did, Patrick right? Swayze, right? When I saw it, I was surprised, and I couldn't put the words to it of why and I don't want to say I was disappointed but I was just like I was like this is not what I expected and then I it was the soundtrack and I was like why am I listening to this music with this it just doesn't they weren't they didn't go together for me so it made me feel good that when I read later on that Francis Ford Coppola didn't like it either right and you told me oh it's his dad but the words that you use where it's got this kind of after school special feel about it. And that's absolutely right. Like I was sitting there going, why does this feel like something I would watch on TV as opposed to a great movie by a great director of one of the most famous stories of all time? And then I watched Rumblefish. And with Rumblefish, I was still like, I wasn't, I did not have the same feeling at all. But it's like you said, it's opposite sides of the same coin. Heads right. you live, tails you die. Right. Right? I mean, we've got death in both of them, but one is inspirational and the other one is That's right. And so I don't know that I actually liked Rumblefish better, but I want to go watch it again. Yeah. I'm not a big... I mean, I like more artistic films than a lot of people, but this was a very art film kind of art film. I'm not big into the existentialist feel. Okay. But what was going on made me think so much and made me go what does this mean what are they talking about what's going on that i want to go back and watch it again the outsiders yeah okay i'll watch it with somebody again. i'll watch it with a kid again right because it's a kid movie it is a kid movie it's a kid movie and so when i was watching it with caleb and we get to the scene where pony boy is crying and is upset and devastated at things he was like who is that actor and i was like oh that's c thomas howell he's like well, what happened to him? Because he's fantastic. And I was like, well, of all of them, he's the guy who probably did the least well, honestly. Yeah. So, all that to say, if I'm going to watch a movie again, it's going to be Rumblefish. Unless it's with my kids, and then it's going to be The Outsiders. I think as far as quality of acting goes, I pick The Outsiders. Okay. I think as far as interesting topic and ideas and themes and 
ideas of shots and film as a whole, I go Rumblefish. Yeah. So this is really a hard choice for me. Yeah. But you're right. In the end, I'm picking Rumblefish over The Outsiders if I got to walk out the door and grab a DVD just for myself. Sure. Just for myself. Well, and like you said, you didn't see it way back when. They're two different styles, and I love both. Yeah. I will tell you this. Listening to Francis Ford Coppola talk about his love for Rumblefish is also something incredibly great to listen to. It is. It's, it really is. He's, he's got this really fantastic moment where he's, he's talking about the great directors of the past, and he's, he was talking about how when he was young, he felt like he could do anything in any kind of movie, and that's why he did a musical right before he did these two movies. And, and he's like, and you know, theater's not that old. Like in the rules that we have in, in, in movies these days are all set by guys who had never done it before. It was just happening. I mean, it's, it hasn't been around that long. So you should do artistic things and you should experiment and you should make your own rules. And then he's like, of course, that's what I did with this movie and it was an absolute failure. It caused <laughs> me to declare bankruptcy. So forget everything that I've said. Forget that. Just pretend like you just you just skip this part the next time you watch the commentary. <laughs> well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode of The Outsiders vs. Rumblefish. Number one, we hope you'll go watch Rumblefish and sort of rediscover that classic. Well, D, I'm excited about what we've got coming next week. Tell me. So hopefully we'll have maybe a bonus episode or maybe a sprinkling with Danny Boy O'Connor. That's going to be really cool. But the music matchup that we got coming down the pipe is from 1983. We have Lionel Richie and his album Can't Slow Down. It's a nuclear bomb, That's a big hitter. Yeah. 20 million copies. Yeah. Against Billy Joel's An Innocent Man, also from 83. That's too hard. Those are some incredible albums from 1983, both turning 40 years old. I feel like you chose this and threw this at me, and now I've got to pick between these two monsters. Hey, it's going to be a lot of fun to dive in. Well, at least it'll be fun to listen to the music. I'm excited. Let's do it. Stay gold, everybody.